morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us here on Dropping the Gloves. Uh, well, I, if if you're in North Carolina, it's a balmy spring morning. If you're in northern Michigan, we just got hit with a nice snowstorm. So depending on where you are, I hope you're enjoying the weather because it's wacky and wild here in the United States, Tim. Everything's different. It's great. But yes, getting back to the more important thing. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate the support. I hope you guys enjoy the episode as much as we like putting it on because we're going to have a good one today, Tim. Don't you think? We do. I'm still a little sore last night after watching the Bruins collapse against uh, Edmonton. Ooh, which is I'm glad you. Fin- I'm glad you finished that with watching the Bruins because it started off a little strange. I'm a little sore after last night. I'm a little emotionally sore. Yeah, yeah. They were up to nothing and they looked good. And McDavid, McDavid was very quiet. They shut him down, but the Oilers found a way to win. It is what I was going to say that. Yeah, McDavid didn't do much. The Bruins did a good job of keeping him under wraps. But last time I checked it, then I went to bed because I'm a baby these days and I go to bed early. It was 2 nothing Bruins. I was like, here yep. we go. Stuart Skinner is not playing well. This is a prelude to the Stanley Cup final. Not really. One of the teams will be there. The other one will not. But what a comeback by the Oilers. Is this mm-hmm. is this a sign of things to come? Either the Bruins letting a, a lead that they don't characteristically let go or the Edmonton Oilers maybe showing some chutzpah and coming back and saying, this is our statement game. I have to say, this is, this is not the Edmonton Oilers of a year or two ago. This, they said that on the broadcast too, like they were down a goal, even when they were tied, like they were calm, they were playing their game. They were playing topical. They were bringing the pressure. It wasn't just the offense only mentality that you saw from them for so many years. And so, yeah, I think, they they are a better team than I think I've, I've given them credit for. It's not just McDavid and Drysdale and then everybody else. Even though on the scoreboard it might seem like that, but they're a more complete team. And Ekholm, you know, balance that that out even more. The big question, obviously, is always the goaltending. Skinner let in the beach ball on the first shot he faced last night. Bad angle shot from Marsham, but then he played really well the rest of the game. And so, yeah, yeah this is a good team. I would say the Bruins did carry the play a little bit just based on the shots. The Oilers only managed to throw 19 shots on net, but they got some production from the back end. Evan Bouchard played pretty well. Darnell Nurse, not bad. And I've said it once, I've said it a million times, if they can get some supplemental scoring and some help for those first two lines, they could potentially be dangerous. I'm not saying they're going to last night, too. He did. He did. He played all right. If they could, yeah. Tim, they, it wouldn't surprise me. The West is wide open. It's really funny, too, because they said on a broadcast about McDavid at one point late in the game, he might have got another shot, but he only had one shot on net at that point in the third period. And they said it's only happened like six times in the last year or something like that. And in those six instances, on uh, he scored four out of the six games where only had one shot. <laughs> it's just, is that right? he's amazing. Yeah, he even touched the puck once. He'll just, he'll bury it. So, yeah, it was pretty cool to watch him. Well, he's such a difference maker because teams key on him so much it's almost like a a football team when you have a star wide receiver and you have to double team him you know what i mean then it opens up stuff for other guys and you watch that when he plays and the line mates that he has who are successful find ways to use that open ice when he was with the nuge the nuge did a great job of just finding that open spot either it's in front of the net in the corner whatever because people key on mcdavid so heavily it's amazing how just fixated there and rightfully so the guy's a legit superstar. He's the best player in the world. So he draws a lot of attention. And if you're smart enough to use that space, you're going to get some great A chances. I would love to. We'll get Swayman back on the show at some point in the future. And I'd love to ask him what he played last night or another goal. He like 
do, do, do goalies prepare for games differently depending on who they're playing or do they keep it simple or the, is, is the X's and O's more for the, the offense and defense or it is like the Swayman approach a game differently if he's facing a guy like McDavid, you know? Well, I'm sure they, they do scouting. I've played in the NHL, so I know these goalies and I did for a little bit, nice. almost a decade. Anyways, so I, I know they have their scouting report. They watch videos. They sit there before the game and they watch, okay, what are the tendencies of the high-end guys? You know, no one's scouting me. No one's scouting him a cloud for Edmonton. You're scouting the guys who are going to be on the power play to get the majority of shots. That's what they do. What are his tendencies? Does he have any tells? Does he like to dip his hand when he releases? Does he like to, you know, when he's about to shoot, maybe he looks up or he looks down or this and that. So it's interesting to kind of watch a goaltender go through the the process of examining a player. It's it's kind of that's what makes Connor Bedard so effective. By the way, he his tells for when he shoots are very small. If you watch a guy, you can tell when he's loading up his shot. He'll drop his head. He'll maybe stop skating, this and that. Connor Bedard, his release is so deceptive where he's just looking up, looking up, looking up. All of a sudden, he shoots it. There's no hesitation. He looks down. Boom, it's gone. It's pretty seamless from his skating style to his shot style. The the kid's good. Like It's really, really good what he's doing. I've watched a lot of his games and a lot of his highlights, and he's just... He's an incredibly good hockey player. But anyways, I don't know how we got on this tangent. Let's get to the the meat and potatoes of this episode. Now, I I used to be a fighter. Still am sometimes, depending on, you know, if you catch me on a wrong day or not. And when I got to the NHL, when I got to the AHL, when I got to the professional ranks, everybody talked about the code. Have you heard of this term, Tim, the code? There's been movies based on it. There's been books. People talk about it all the time. People make fun of it. People say it's outdated. People think it's just a load of jargon. Have you heard of this code that people talk about? I have, but it's kind of one of those like shapeless things where there's not an exactly written rule book and what it is, but you also know if you break it, like don't break it, don't break it. But what are the rules? Well, you have to just know. It's just sort of one of those things. It is one of those things. And, and it, I guess it goes further than just fighters because there are unwritten rules in hockey that you just don't do. You know, there, there's certain things that players just universally know. Don't do that. Why? Well, I don't know. You just don't do it. So I just wanted to talk about those things and see if any are outdated. If any are still applicable. If some are just completely crazy. Where it's like, well, why are we even talking about this? And we'll and we'll start with the fighting side of it because I'm a fighter. This is the dropping the glove show. Couple codes for fighting: don't hit a down player. I've been hit on my knees by multiple friends of the show while I was defenseless. <laughs> um, friends not of a the fan show. Of oh yeah, Revo did it to me. Colt Nord did it to me. These guys both. Cam Jansen, I think he's done it to me. No, I, Cam never knocked me down. But yeah, multiple times, guys like take advantage of you on the on the ice. What do you think of this? Is this a good rule to have? Don't hit a defensive defenseless opponent because I really took this one to heart. Out of all the codes that there were, this was the one that I tried to abide by. I had guys in bad positions many, many, many times, and I will defy you to find me hitting a guy on the ice. I don't think I ever did it. I don't think I ever hit somebody when I knew I had won the fight. Um, I, just off the top of my head, like a, a Westgarth, a McLaren, a uh, Dorsett, um, th- these types of guys I, I let up where I could have really continued to pummel them. 
What do you think of this rule? You probably love it because you don't like violence. Is is it was it okay what Colt Nord did to me when he hit me in the stomach and I lost my breath and I had to drop to my knees and he just teed off one right in my ear? Was that okay? No. It, to me, it makes me think it, it's an emotional move. And and I know that your blood's up while you're in a fight, regardless, your your uh your energy and all that, but it, it feels more like if you had laid someone out, you threw a dirty hit and he really, really wants to pummel you. It's more just about fighting. He wants to hurt you. And then you got to like, he, he doesn't let up. That's what it makes me think of. When you, when I think of someone who's hitting defenseless players in a fight or like someone's down, they're still throwing. I'm thinking of like the Zach Ronaldo's of the world, the guys that, that are known for, for doing cheap stuff like that. I don't really think of the, the main, the heavyweight and forces throwing things like that. All right. The next one, when to initiate a fight. When is it appropriate to initiate a fight? Is it against the code to ask a guy to fight when your team is losing four to nothing? As a fighter, I always got annoyed when the other team started to get behind. If if my team was up three nothing, four nothing, and then the other team's tough guy would be forced to ask me to fight. And I'd be like, where was this energy when it was zero zero? Where was this energy when it was a one nothing game? Now, all of a sudden, you're down by four and you have to fight me. And I'm guilty of this, too. My first NHL fight was versus George Peros when we were down three to nothing. I'm like, gosh, now I got to ask George to fight. And I beat him up and it worked out well. But I'm guilty of this, too. What are your thoughts on the code where if if you weren't ballsy enough to ask when it was zero zero, you have no business asking when it's three and four nothing? I don't I don't agree with that one. I mean, a lot of times, guys, you started the other night with Reeves and Lucic, and you know, you everyone wanted to see that fight happen. But at that point, it was two nothing or three nothing, uh, Minnesota. So Reeves has no reason to give them any momentum. And so I don't, I haven't heard that being part of the code. I mean, what I have heard, and maybe this is one of the things on your list. I, I didn't hear this until you until you talked about it on the show is fighting guys at the end of a shift. Yep. I never ever would have thought that was a thing or it wouldn't have crossed my mind until you talked about it, but that seems way more interesting and way more of a factor. Yeah. I've had a coach. Um, I won't say who he would tell He was a great coach, like a fantastic coach. And he knew if I was going into a game and I was going to fight somebody tough and he'd be like, I'll get you out there when he's at the end of his shift and you go grab him, you beat the snot out of him. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. And you would do it, you know, because any edge that you can get on your opponent, why not? So he would throw me out there right when this guy was middle of the way on his shift, maybe a hard back check. And I would go out there I'd hit him, say, let's go. And then we would fight. And I would have that slight advantage. You know, he's a little bit gassed. Their fighters do so many greasy things to, to get advantages. You should hear the stories. When I get together with like a Rob Ray, a Marty McSorley, um, or George LaRocque, uh, Andre Waugh, the things guys would do to get a slight advantage throughout the career. Derek Bugard would put tough skin on his knuckles. So when he would punch, he would cut somebody. Rob Ray would Vaseline up his whole body because he would rip off his jersey and everything. And he would be just greased up from head to toe. You couldn't grab onto him. Andre Waugh would just cut little scissors and cut his jersey. So they would it would tear away. Like these guys, like every advantage you could get, Matt Cassian would make his sleeves extra, extra tight on his jersey so you couldn't grab onto anything. And he was the first guy that I ever saw that had a tie strap on his front. So you couldn't do the jersey jabs while you grabbed his jersey because guys will grab your jersey and punch you in the face. Well, you can't do that if you can't lift the, the jersey up. 
then you would have to let go of your grip and that's a disadvantage. So all these things are very smart. I didn't do any of these because I, I don't know if you know this about me, Tim, but I can't be bothered by a lot of things. I'm just like, whatever, you know what I mean? Are we going to fight or not? I don't need to have some kind of advantage. Even with this podcast, Tim's like, are you going to do something today? I'm like, I'll figure it out. You know what I mean? It'll just, it'll just come to me. And I, I think a lot of the fighters took a different approach where they, they really saw it as a science and they really uh, invested some time into it. Whereas I just, okay, in the off season, I'll box a little bit. But, and then it's just like, we'll punch each other. Okay. But if you were 6'2", 6'3", and 220, you would have w- spent way more time thinking about the science and, and the and the upper hand. And you didn't have to. I mean, I know you still, you still worked on your craft, but it wasn't the same as the guys who were smaller that needed to find other ways to get an advantage. God bless me with a nice reach and a, and a nice jaw. You know what I mean? And, and some, and some height. I, I agree. Maybe if I was getting punched in the face a little more, I would be a little bit more cautious and do a little more research. And that's not to say I didn't research the fights and do a little hockeyfights.com action because I did, but I didn't go to the extent of like some of the guys are just like, just like Vaseline all over the face to the point where you can't, like you can see the shine from the bench. Like I can see the layer of Vaseline on your face. Like I, I see it. It's which is not illegal. Like, uh, are we boxing? Are we are we still playing hockey here? <laughs> there was a point where I just didn't know. All right, a couple more, and then we'll move on to other general hockey codes. Staying in your weight class. Now, this one this one really strikes me as um, again, this hits hard because of the infamous Phil Kessel thing. I believe. There is a time and a place to set a send a message, and as a tough guy, you have to pick those points. And I think that was a good good spot for me to pick versus Phil Kessel. After the fact, that I took a lot of heat, even from tough guys. Uh, I, I saw a lot of interviews. Um, people were just coming after me. Like, well, I would never do that. I think it's fine sometimes to go after a skill guy if your skill guy is getting taken advantage of and the other guy's tough guy won't fight. If the other team's skill guy, a la Brad Marchant or a Corey Perry or something of that ilk is just being a goofball. And it's like, I'm going for it. If your team is in a funk and you're trying to snap everything out of it and you need to flip the switch, then you do it. I will stand behind my fight of Phil Kessel to the day I die. And it wasn't even a fight. But if I would have grabbed them, I would have sent them through the stinking boards. I would have just buried them. So uh, I uh, stand by that, even though many of my colleagues and guys I respect say it was a gutless move. Hey, what are you going to do? So you, I mean, that that example aside, you've said you would ask like anyone all game long, anyone you line up against, you would just say, hey, even Pasadak is that famous example, but anyone, even the other fighters. And you were like, sort of kidding, just letting them know that you're there. But if they said, yes, you would have fought them, right? Like. If, yeah. if you said that to Rich Peverly or Chris Kelly, like a, a small skill player, and they said, yeah, you would have thrown and you would have treated yeah. it like a fight. Yeah. Why not? Why Why wouldn't I? If, well, if the, they want to drop the gloves with me, I would skate by the other team's bench. I'm like, shop's open. Who's come, Who's fighting me tonight? Anybody? I didn't think so. And I would just continue on my way. Loud enough so my bench could hear it. Right. You know what I mean? And I wouldn't do that versus every team. If they had a fighter, I would embarrass the bench. But if I'm playing a Vancouver Canucks team that has that greasy scumbag Tom Sestito on it, I'm embarrassing him and his whole team. I'm yelling it so everybody in the rink can hear. A la Brady Kachuk. 
Love versus that. the Detroit Red Wings last week when he said, who wants it? Nobody? Everybody's picking up quarters all of a sudden on the ground. No one can look me in the eye. Okay, fine. You are now all my, you know what I'm going to say. And that's how, that's what I would do. I would do it to the Canucks a lot. I would do it to the Red Wings, the Leafs, maybe not the Leafs later on when they got some beef, but I wouldn't do it to a team that had a tough guy because I wouldn't want to embarrass them and maybe piss them off so they could just come after me. So if a team was being greasy and playing a greasy game, I would embarrass the whole team and their coach. I did it to Torts a lot. He was fun to do it to because he would just snap, <laughs> just lose his marbles. You're lucky I'm not out there. <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't get, get out of here. <laughs> like you, so, you, It was so funny to get him worked up. But yeah, that was the code. Fight in your weight class. And I just, I don't agree with that. But anyway, should we do one more? Move on to just total hockey codes. Give me one more. Give me one more code. Another NHL code that everybody should abide by. Okay, the last one I want to touch on, and this one is is near and dear to my heart, is don't embarrass a fighter. If you've won the fight, just walk away. You know, or skate away. You see, and Aaron Asham had the classic one where he put, um, who did he fight from Washington? I can't remember. He just put him to sleep. And he did the night-night symbol. There's other guys who do like the guns. There's the double fist raise. The only time I've ever done that is when I fought McLaren and I so jacked up that I was like, let's go. Guys do it all the time now. Pseudo friend of the show, um, the guy from the Sharks used to do it a lot. Um, after he would get into a fight and throw someone to the ice, he would do it. I don't like this. You just engaged in a fight with somebody. Why embarrass them? They did their best. You won the fight. That should be enough. Because even after the McLaren thing, I got into the box and I was like, ah, you donkey, why'd you do that? Like that was, I did, the moment got the best of me. But I think guys actively go out and do that. You watch the QMHL, the Quebec Major Junior, not the, it's the LNAH like the fighting league in Quebec. That's all they do. Both of them. After every fight, they throw like 10 punches. None of them land. They both fall over. And then they get up and they like, whoever celebrates the most wins the fight, I guess. It's so strange. Very strange dynamic in that league. But I I don't know. I don't like it. You probably love it. Well, let me ask you this. I know you haven't lost many fights, but did anyone ever embarrass you? Any other fighters or enforcers? Um, Not with... Not a post-game well, I didn't see, first of all, because I was catching my breath with Colt Orr and then Justin Johnson. I was just smiling because he got me. But I don't think so. It, there's another factor in this that I could say, too. How to ask a fighter how to fight. There's a way to go about it. You don't chase them around and tap them and embarrass them. If I say no, I means no. There's a reason for it, which I very rarely said no. I said no twice, and I regret it both times. But, you, you know, sometimes guys can't fight. They got a broken hand. The coach said, no, there's reasons. They're, they're winning four to nothing. They're not going to fight. Don't embarrass them tapping them on the pads. I've done this to players. So I'm big time guilty in this. When I was with the Sabres and we were always losing, I would point at the coach. I'd point at the bench. I'm like, why aren't we fighting? What's going on? I thought you were tough. I'd like face wash, tap his pads. I'd kick the back of his skates, stuff like that, just to engage in a fight. But what do you think about embarrassing a player either after or before a fight? Is that okay? Well, in certain situations, maybe, but, but probably not. But don't, haven't you seen examples where like, um, like say, for example, you know, someone's not going to fight you and, and, and let's use Thomas Estita. He said no. And, he, and 
would you ask him again in like a more public way so that his whole team can watch him turn down a fight to try to embarrass him in that way? Is that something that you guys would do? I would do the bench thing there. Yeah. <laughs> George LaRock told me a funny story and maybe he told it on the show where he had opposing players who would ask him questions just so he would shake his head. No. Yeah. <laughs> and then they would go to the show. bench and be like, he won't no. fight me. <laughs> like he would, they would go up and ask George like, Hey, we're going to go to dinner tonight. And he'd go, no, no, we're not. <laughs> And then the player would be like, see, I, I asked him, he said no. <laughs> and then he would go on his way. So it's really funny um, to to hear those stories. Um, I also saw a video once where yeah, a ref, like, I, don't know. I think it was on those, one of those 24-7 videos where the guy would tell the ref before the game, like, hey, man, like my, my hand's busted up. I'm not going to go tonight. So if you see a scrum or you see something happening, like, can you jump in and break it up? And did that, did that get communicated to the other team too? Like, Hey, would you pull your side? Like, hey, Johnny, just so you know, like Revo's not going tonight, so don't, don't, don't give him any trouble. Um, yeah, but it's very rare that a tough guy doesn't, you know, doesn't play if they're hurt. Like, if my hand's broken, I'm not playing. I'm not that right. valuable to the team. Where, like, I don't know why I'm talking about him all the time. Sestito did that to me. My hands broke. My hands broke. Then he's fighting somebody else. I'm like, you jerk. Like, you can't. Then you get this reputation of like you're. Scared, which he was. Anyways, moving on. Let's do some more hockey applicable ones and we'll get on with our show. Never hit a defenseless player. We saw this the other night with TJ Oshie on Ryan Lindgren for the New York Rangers. PK Subban, Mark Messier talked about it. There's a famous clip of Subban just shaking his head, making fun of Mark Messier, which everybody was giving Subban a hard time about. Let's just talk about this first. I am in PK's corner. Why, why is he not allowed to have a reaction? And I get heat on this too, because, oh, you're just a goon. You don't know anything about hockey, this and that. What Says who? Just because Messier can snap a puck better than I am means he knows more about hockey than me. We both played the game. Like, he's just better at it. I get I know more about hockey than a person who hasn't played the game. I think if you played hockey in the NHL, you know the ins and outs of hockey. Just because, you know, Marty Berdur can stop a puck better than somebody else doesn't make him understand hockey better it means he's just a better athlete and he's just right. better you know what i mean so I, I didn't like the vitriol that pk suban was getting he's allowed his reaction he's allowed to you know have his take on things the guy was an all-star he's a very good hockey player just because he didn't get to ride shotgun next to wayne gretzky for a dozen years and win stanley cup after stanley cup makes him any worse so that all that aside hitting a defensive player i think the hit tj oshi did was pretty pretty bad uh i it's one of the most dangerous hits you can have so i'm on the side of you have to the onus is on the hitter not the person getting hit now we'll put a caveat on that players purposely put themselves in bad situations because they know the player will hold up a defenseman now is taught to turn his back in the corner when retrieving a puck because he's assuming the forward won't forecheck. You're putting yourself in a very dangerous situation. So there, there's that gray area of, is he abusing that situation by always putting himself in a dangerous spot in this situation? I don't think Lindgren was doing that. He just was a little indecisive on where he's, where he's turning back. Is he going, trying to get the red and Oshie didn't know what he was doing. Cause Oshie's in a dirty player and he buried him. Absolutely buried him. You can hear TJ after that. He's like, Hey, sorry, man. That was a bad one. But what is your stance? Should the onus be on the player getting hits or the player giving the hit? Well, it's a little bit of both, but obviously it's mostly on the guy giving the hit. Like you gotta, if you see someone in a vulnerable, vulnerable position, you, you let up. 
or if you that's what i've seen too like and, and this is why they should teach checking at, at a younger age when they can't really hurt each other as much where they'll they'll ride them into the boards rather than a, a single impact which is when they go head first into the mm-hmm. boards and someone gets hurt or someone breaks a leg or something whatever pops the shoulder um it's usually a hit from behind where you see guys in a vulnerable vulnerable position the rafi torres hit on, on hosa obviously that, that, that head hunting the other example I thought of, this is kind of obscure, but remember Andrew Alberts, the defenseman? Yeah. Um, like 15 years ago, he was playing the puck in the neutral zone, and he went down on his knees because there was a bouncing puck, and he played it with his hands, and he passed that up, and he got hit as if he was standing up. It was a clean hit based on timing, and he wasn't targeting the head, except the player's on his knees next to the boards, and I forget who hit him, but someone hit him, and he went down really hard, and he was never the same again. And he barely played after that, and that was a guy that – a healthy defenseman who was in a vulnerable position. The other guy didn't let up and you're, you're changing careers at that point. It was Blake Como who hit him. And yeah, he, Alberts, I just watched it. Blake Como ran him over and Alberts just all of a sudden falls to his knees. He was with Calgary at the time and Blake Como was with the Vancouver or vice versa. Excuse me. He buries him. So, and here's the thing with defenseless players. I'm all for letting up. If it's going to be a potentially illegal hit, hit from behind. If it's an open ice hit, I think you go for it. I don't think you need to let up at all. I think you just pedal to the metal. Let's let's light this guy up. I, I'm only for letting up is if it's in the danger areas, five feet from the boards. But if it's open ice and you can have a clean hit, a la friend of the show, Brian Campbell, when he buried RJ Umberger, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's no reason to let up. That's that's when the onus is on the player getting hit. You're in the middle of the ice. You better you better keep your head up. I, I you know so I guess I'm a hypocrite, but it's different on different areas of the ice. That's that's the way I see it. And so yes, with your your show, you make the rules. Damn right. All right, another code: don't embarrass another team or player. An unwritten rule. I mean. Don't embarrass the team. Don't run up the score. Don't put up the first power. Don't put out the first power play unit when you're winning by five. Don't do those things. You see it time and time again. The teams do that. What do you think? Is there a, is there any validity to this unwritten rule, Tim, where you should not do that? If your team's winning by five, do you still throw the first power play unit out or do you put the fourth line out? What do you think? Yeah. If there's an empty net, you still continue to score. Like when I was playing in San Jose, Colorado kept pulling their goalie. And we kept scoring in the empty net. What's your thoughts on this? This is interesting because this is more the the coaches are getting involved. Like they're the, the players yeah. on the ice don't pick, right? So the the coaches, and this is where you see I love when the coaches get animated at each other, especially if it's one of the rings where they're right near each other and they're just screaming at each other because like Torch is always yelling at somebody or getting yelled mm-hmm. at. And that's what it is. It's like okay, you're up by four or five late in the game, and you still get your first power play unit out there. You're doing it to embarrass them. Because you can, like, you're not working on your power play. You can do that at practice the next day. You're not getting them reps. You can do that in any situation. You're doing that specifically to try to keep keep the score up. And I I actually love to, I'm not really necessarily related, but I love when it's late in the game and, you know, a team's up by four or five goals and you see the fourth line out there in the power play. And I get to watch, like, Trent Frederick, like, you know, work in the half boards. Like, it's just fun. It's fun as a fan. Um, but, yeah, I think that is very intentional. And I think it shouldn't, I, you are trying to embarrass them. Call it what it is. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I am full, full with you on this one, which is very rare. You should not, you shouldn't put the four, you shouldn't put your first power play unit out there 
if you're up by four. I think four is the number. If you're up by three, put them out there. Four is that magic number where it's like, yeah, we, we got this one in hand. How many power play shifts did you get in your career? Oh, not many. I can count them on one hand. Yeah. What it about is it penalty kill? Would you play all situations PK or just like if it wasn't a close game or something? I know you killed penalties. But... Um, when I was a defenseman, I killed penalties pretty regular. Yeah. So that was kind of just across the board. I was a second kill with Martin Skula. So we go, it was Nick Schultz, Brent Burns, the first unit. Then it was me and school uh, for the second unit with the wild. I love killing penalties. So fun. It's fun getting in the way of a one-timer um, of Ovechkin. It's just great. Yeah, it, it was, it was a lot of fun. All right. A couple more, then we'll move on. Um, don't score into the opposing net when the whistle is blown. Thoughts. So this is an, this reminds me of baseball when like you don't walk across the mound unless you're the pitcher, like there's certain little things or you don't step into the paint or certain situations. And this feels a little bit more silly, a little bit like who you're not doing it to anyone. And it's one of those things that no one ever told anyone the rules. It's just been that way forever. And everyone just, it's it's a hill they'll die on until the day they die. You know what I mean? And so it seems a little silly, but I, I wouldn't change it. I would still do it if I was in the NHL. So it's always funny to see the reaction of the opposing team when a player does it. Whether it's just a, an innocuous shot on net, you know, the whistle was a little late and then the guy just still shot it. Or if it's a player being a pest who's just doing it, to try to rattle the goaltender. The other team acts like you just shot their firstborn. What? Did you did you see that? And they just go crazy. And all five of them skate towards the guy. And it's always, always a massive scrum afterwards. It's really, really funny, but... Even, I, even in the video games, like if you if you do that, oh, really, whistle, it automatically starts a fight. It doesn't matter who's on the ice; like it'll automatically so chase you around. Yeah. Now, what what is this an indication of? Is this the goaltender being a complete whack job who can't process a puck even entering his net once the game starts, and he just like completely loses it, or is this the player saying that's my net? You don't do that. Play within the whistles. That's not right. Like, what is this more? Is is it column A, the goalie's just a crazy loon job? Or is it B, the team's just like being protective of the goaltender? It's it's totally manufactured. It's totally like it's not it's inorganic. It's just like this is the rule because we've decided that it is. There's no like underlying thing behind it. Like the defenseless players are the embarrassing like that. Since then, the stuff that we're talking about. So I think it is. Yeah. Your mic just changed to be so smooth. Maybe it was my headphone, but I like it. But I think this is more of an indication of the goaltender's a little whack job. You know what I mean? He's just a little, there's something off with the goaltender. You know, we've had goaltenders on. We had Swayman. We had Knight. We had Marty Turkle. We've had a handful of goaltenders. Ryan Miller. Nice guys, Tim. Always a little off. Don't you? Don't they seem a little cerebral? It's like, oh, I love to, you know, uh, just go and meditate. And, I, you know, nothing flaps me. If you have to say nothing flaps you something something flaps you you know you you get bothered so goaltenders are a little they're they're a little weird so i think it's the first one where if a goaltender sees a puck go in his net he he, he can't stop thinking about it so okay. i don't know it may be all right we'll do one more then we'll move on to the show don't ever touch the show hasn't started yet no it's we're we're in it baby don't we'll get back to the main show the hockey talk the current hockey talk. Don't touch the Stanley Cup unless you've won it. Now you you've never played any really competitive hockey. You talk about your club team, who cares? 
What do you think of this as an outsider? Is this a dumb rule? Because if you saw the cup, you take it home and take a bath in it. We all know you. Is this a <laughs> there no rule to have? Was there no way to talk about it without putting me down while you do it? You just that those two things went hand in hand for you. Well, I'm just trying to paint everybody a picture. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, I this is a superstition. This is again one that is totally manufactured. There's no real belief behind it. And I think didn't it only start like not that long ago? Like um, or the one where they don't touch the the one before the, the conference, conference trophy. Yeah, like that only started like what like Gretzky started that. I think it's it's fairly recent. The last thirty or forty years. The Stanley but, Cup, I think, has always been around. I've never known anything but that. Yeah. So I don't know. I it's a superstition and, and no one wants to be the one like if you touched it and then you don't win the cup, they'll 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 that'll keep them up at night, you know? So I, I still won't touch it. To this day, if if I was around it, I didn't win it. I don't deserve it. I think it's a good one. I like this one. Don't touch it, don't lift it unless you've earned the right to lift that cup. So I like it. All right. Are we are we done with this? The un unwritten rules, Tim. Do you think they're valuable or should we just get rid of all of them? No, I mean a lot of them are there for a reason, and and you, I mean a lot of them are there to keep things, keep guys from getting hurt, to keep things from getting out of hand, to not piss people, piss people off, whatever. I think a lot of them are, are intuitive. It's just some of these ones are a little bit sillier than others. But I'm not here to handpick you guys. They're in the NHL; they can make the rules, you know. I agree. All right, moving on. We had some breaking news that just happened right before the show started. A GM got fired, Tim, and in my eyes, it's a long time coming. The Philadelphia Flyers GM, Chuck Fletcher, just got gassed. In comes Danny Breer. I believe he was a scout for the team. He had some administrative roles. So he is in as the new GM, another former player, coming in, taking the reins of an NHL team. It's an old boys club. Everybody knows that. What do you think? About time Chuck Fletcher is out? Yeah, I mean the the it was it's been about time for a while, but the final nail was the trade deadline where you didn't you had all these opportunities, all these players being moved, very active deadline. You don't really do anything. Where you you could have got rid of Provorov, you could have got rid of JVR and rid the team of some of these contracts, even if it meant like eating some of the salary, just just helping them out a little bit. And you had a lot of players showed interest, a lot of a lot of teams showed interest in these guys and if it was a quiet deadline, he was one of like 20 GMs who didn't make a move. It's one thing, but he, he was one of the only guys that didn't make a major splash who could have. And so that's where it was like, okay, I don't know that I trust him. If I didn't already, I definitely don't now. But I, I, I kind of go back and forth on this too, because at least going back to last, before the 2021-22 season last year, he we were praising him. The offseason that he had. Cam Atkinson, Reese Delinen, there were some other names I'm blanking Ryan on. Ryan Ellis. Ryan Ellis. And we were like, okay, this is the GM. He knows his team isn't that good. He's going out and making moves. He might be wrong, but he, but he's taking those chances that a lot of GMs don't. And and so because the players didn't, some guys get hurt, some guys don't live up to their contract, and you can look back at it now and be like, yeah, that was a bad contract. But a lot of, and you included, thought Risto on a good team and a new opportunity to get the right minutes, he could be uh, elevate his game. And turned out he couldn't. And so. Chuck Fletcher is the one who's on the hook for that. And so you could say he made poor decision, but he took chances and sometimes they don't work out. Yeah. The writing was on the wall in my eyes when they hired John Tortorella. I felt like that was the last straw for a Chuck Fletcher. He had ran through a few coaches. Nothing seemed to work out. He traded Claude Giroux last year. He got a good return for him. It just, he ran out of time. I don't think he did anything egregious with this team. I I don't hate any of his trades really it just didn't work out it really didn't work out he he the only 
issue I had was when he traded Shane Goss's bear. It, he didn't get anything for him. And then he went out and he acquired Tony Delangelo, who was essentially the same player. And it, it that didn't make sense with me, but everything else he did from, you know, getting Niskanen, trading Justin Braun, trading, you know, Voracek for Atkinson, all of the moves were just kind of so-so. There wasn't one trade that he knocked out of the park. There wasn't one trade that he got completely fleeced. So he didn't do a terrible job in that regard. I don't think he did enough. Like you said, I think what this team needed was just a complete overhaul. He tried. Maybe if Ryan Ellis is playing, it's a it's a different team. Maybe if some of the guys who are injured are playing, it's it's a different team. The Sean Couturier, the Travis Konechny, the Cam Atkinson. This has been an injury plague season for them. Maybe it's different, but it's not. And they keep losing. Now it's towards his team. This guy, he, he has full reins on this team. Do you think Danny Briere is going to be making the decisions in Philadelphia? I know Danny. Nice guy. Very soft-spoken. How do you think those talks are going to go in a room in the offseason on who we're going to acquire? What Which people are we going to target between Torts and Briere? You know, like in those war movies where there's like a, a grizzled veteran sergeant who's been in the army for 20 years and he has to answer to this new like 20 something out of West Point who has no combat experience. And there's like that dynamic where like everyone knows who's really in charge, even though he's got to salute the younger guy. It's not quite that because Briere like had a very successful career. He's been in the front office for a couple of years for the Flyers now. He's not this this newbie. But yeah, that's what it makes me think of. Like Torch isn't going to I'm sure he admires and respects Briere as a person, as a player, he's not going to answer to him in the way it's his team. Like you said, it's his team. Yeah. It, it, it's remember Moneyball when the GM it was Billy Bean trying to go on. He's like, pay my player, play my players, play my players. And the coach like, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to play the team. I'm the coach. This is how it's going to be. Briere's going to, Oh, I really want you to play this really skilled winger. He's going to be great on the half wall in the power play. And Torch is like, the guy doesn't block any shots. No, I'm not doing it, Danny. Get out of my, get out of my rink. Like, it's just going to be really funny to see the interaction between them because they're just completely different people. But is this going to change anything in Philadelphia? Yeah. Kevin Hayes locked up for a long time. Joe Farabee, Scott Lawton, you got Delorier. You know, that's not your issues. The issues are on the back end. You got Ristolainen locked up for a long time. You got Provorov, who doesn't really want to be there. You got Sanheim. It, there's nothing really inspiring on the back end, the way that I see it. Much like a lot of teams in the world, defensemen are really hard to come by these days. So do you, you see this team being competitive, Tim, in the next five years? No, that's too long. Next two years, are they a competitive team? No. And I want them to be because I, I I've been waiting for this group to take that next step, the the, the next step, the Farabees of the world's connectees, like they've they've shown glimpses of it, but they haven't like stepped forward as a group the way that other franchises have. And I know that they're hindered by some bad contracts. They're not as good on paper as some of the other teams, like the Sabers and Red Wings, Ottawa, for example. But I'm waiting for those guys to turn into stars and they just haven't yet. And and Provorov has actually taken several steps backwards. He was so good two years ago. Look at his stats and now look at what he's doing now. And I get a lot of it has to do with situational and whatever. And he's probably not happy. He's probably not a hundred percent, you know, thrilled to be there and whatever. So a lot of things can impact that. But the other thing is Carter Hart. He was, he was carry price 2.0 three years ago. We were ready to hand him the, the reins of team Canada for the next three Olympics. Like it was his, and then look what he's done. And I get the defense and I get whatever and whatever, but that's that's not Fletcher's fault. I mean, maybe you can take some responsibility for the team he ices in front of Carter Hart, but Carter Hart's been letting in beach balls. The save percentage is, is below 900. 
the the um, goals against has been over four in different parts of the season. So what do you do with that as a GM? It's not it's not his fault, but again, something got to change because all of it collectively just isn't working. Yeah, I look at a, a guy like Carter Hart and people talk about, well, it's a system, it's a defense. I look at a John Gibson. That guy plays on a terrible team in Anaheim. He constantly gets faced with 40, 41 shots every single night. And he, he's he been playing fantastic his whole career in Anaheim. Every year, posting a save percentage above nine goals against usually hovers around three just because they're such a bad team and he faces so many shots. Hart's not a good goalie anymore. He's not a bad goalie. He's definitely not a starting goaltender in the NHL at this point in his career. He's still young. He's 24. Maybe he bounces back and he kind of finds his game. But at this point, he's making almost $4 million a year for the next two years. It, ugh. I don't know. You got to sign him with the first two years that he had. But yeah, to answer my own question, no, I don't see this changing the Philadelphia Flyers at all. I, I don't. And I don't want them to be good. I'll just say it. I like the fan base. I think they're passionate. They've done nothing in my eyes to warrant to be a winning team. Nothing. They haven't drafted really all that well. They haven't made any, I guess they have made some decent trades, but nothing, you know, life altering. I don't, I don't think they need to be good in my eyes. It's okay if they stink. They deserve to be garbage for a long time because they had a good team for a long time. And they made the cup finals once and they almost won it. We had a friend of the show, uh, Sean Pronger on it. Chris Pronger. And he talked about that. But is Sean Pronger his brother? I don't know. I am so bad at names and I don't know why. You're thinking Sean O'Donnell? Maybe they played together? Definitely not thinking Sean O'Donnell. I don't know why. All right, moving on. Also, I hold a little tiny vendetta against Chuck Fletcher. My first team was Minnesota Wild. He took over from uh, Jacques Lemaire. Or who did he take over? Doug Reisbrauer. And he took his job my second year and Chuck claimed in. He's like, you're not, I'm not resigning you. I'm like, why? The season's not even over. Like, I, I'm doing pretty well here. And he's like, yeah, you're not in my plans. Minnesota went out and sucked the next three years. So good. I'm glad he's leaving. Good for him. And you went Anyways, from there to Chicago? I did go from there to Chicago. Yeah. Worked out. Worked out for me. Not you. really. I got traded from Chicago. We didn't win anything. No you ring on my hand. You made some friends. You had a nice time in the big city. It was great. I had a lot of fun there, but we weren't like winning anything. I had a winning percentage. I still want to do this. Go and get my wins losses when I played. I bet you I'm like above 600. I, I had an incredible winning percentage when I played, even in Buffalo on a bad team, even in Arizona on a bad, a bad team, even in San Jose on a bad team and an incredible winning percentage. All right, moving on. Let's talk about the West Coast. Talk about a code disrespect you don't do this to one of your legendary players there's a code here you treat him right you do what the blackhawks did with patrick kane unless you're not smart enough to get a no move clause in your contract and you're free to be traded to anybody and whoever wants you a la jonathan quick so a couple weeks ago the la kings decided to trade jonathan quick to the columbus blue jackets everything's fine not a big deal or is it Dun, dun, dun. Reports are coming out now that this was just a sloppy trade by Rob Blake. He just pulled the rug out from under Jonathan Quick and traded him on a flight from Winnipeg to L.A. News broke that he got traded and Jonathan Quick didn't even know about it. So Rob Blake had to go and clean out, clean it up and say, oh, Jonathan, you're trading. I'm sorry. I, you know, this and that. The damage had already been done. 
Jonathan Quick was obviously well-liked in that locker room. I think he's been in L.A. for meh, 15 years, if not more. Multiple Stanley Cup winner. Pretty much won the 2012 Stanley Cup for him. Won the Con Smythe. Guy stood on his head the whole playoff run. That was 10 years ago. That was 11 years ago. He gets traded. Reports are out. The guys in L.A. are not happy with Rob Blake and how he handled things. Rob Blake's trying to backtrack, apologize to everybody, saying it won't happen again. What do you think of this whole situation? Is there anything to this? Should we even be talking about this? Rob Blake's just doing his job. Jonathan Quick is a player who can be traded at any point. Just because it's his last year of his contract and he's a legend and he'll have a statue out right beside Dustin Brown, who should not have a statue in front of the Staples Center. Insane that he has a statue. Is this okay for Rob Blake to do this, Tim? Yeah. I mean, it is his job. It's a tradable contract. I, I, It's kind of, um, you do it with a little bit more finesse, I think. You do it with a little bit more like understanding. You pull him aside. I understand it's trade deadline day. The guy's on a uh, the plane, whatever. Maybe you don't have that opportunity. But it sounded like Quick didn't even know that he was like, it was a possibility. Yeah. And that's, that was a problem. That was a mistake on Rob Blake's part. And maybe his he didn't come as a possibility until that day, in which case you shouldn't probably be making that trade anyway because it feels a little bit reactive. But yeah, you trade, do you see the similarities between this and the flurry thing with Vegas? Yeah, I do. What, and then it's the age-old question, what do you deserve? You know what I mean? Why? Why do you deserve to be in on those conversations? And and I go back and forth on this because I was a player who was traded. I was never told, like, hey, heads up, we might trade you. When I got traded from Chicago, Stan Bowman told me the Rangers had been calling on him for months, saying, hey, what's John Scott's status? You know, is, is he up for grabs? For months, they'd been calling. And he never once said anything like, hey, you know, there is a possibility. That's okay. What, why do I deserve that? I, I don't know. But if you're Jonathan Quick and you've been there for – umpteen years and you've won Stanley Cups and Con Smythes and you've set you know team records. Do you earn that right to be a part of that conversation? I don't know. I I say no. That's where I stand. I, I am on the GM side of this. I think Rob Blake's just doing his job. Where this will affect him is down the road. Maybe a player won't go there because he sees how the teams run. This Vegas has that reputation now. Okay. They don't treat their players very well. They can just get rid of them at the drop of a hat. The New England Patriots have the same aura around them where the team comes first. There's no allegiance there, no loyalty. They get rid of somebody when their time is done. So be it. I don't know. I'm on Rob Blake's side. Maybe he could have given him a heads up the day before saying, hey, you suck this year. We're going to maybe try to get another goaltender. Corpus Allo in Columbus is better than you. Maybe you might get traded, but he doesn't owe him anything at all. You probably are worried about Jonathan Quick's feelings? Tim? Well, again, it's just, it's more of a courtesy. Like maybe, I think he's earned that courtesy. I don't think he he's, uh, is, does he deserve it or does he earn it? You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not an obligation, but it's more of a courtesy to me. And so, yeah, I think Rob Blake could have handled this differently. I think he wasn't wrong to trade him. Quick hasn't been great for them this year and they want to go and do something in the playoffs. They also had Gavrikov, not just Corpus Allo, So that was a big piece for them too. And so I think it just it was more how we did it than anything else. Just a way of doing business. Common courtesy. I agree. He could have could have done it differently, but he, he wasn't wrong with the way he did it. All right, let's do some quick hits, Tim, and we'll move on. 
the West is all of a sudden getting very interesting. When we looked at the standings, even last week, it was clear cut. The eight teams are set. That's it. That's who we're going into the playoffs with. All of a sudden, the Winnipeg Gents can't win a game. The Calgary Flames have strung together some wins here. And things are getting very, very tight for that second wildcard position. Calgary is four points behind the Winnipeg Jets, who have lost nine of their last 11. And Calgary's not playing great. Winnipeg just can't get a win. Hellebuck's struggling a little bit. The guys can't score. They're putting up a ton of shots, but their shooting percentage is just tanked. All of the Calgary Flames earlier this year when they were just throwing everything on net and no one could score. What do you think? There's three Canadian teams right now, Tim vying for two wildcard spots. You got to say Edmonton's got that one locked up. Are you questioning whether Winnipeg's going to hold on to that last wildcard spot, even after going out and getting Nito Niederreiter at the deadline, making a little bit of a push? Calgary didn't add anybody. What do you think? you think Calgary has what it takes to get that last spot? Friend of the show, Milan Lucic, wants to know. Man, and there, there are two teams I don't care about. It's the Winnipeg <sighs> Jets and the Calgary Flames. Tim. Honestly, but yeah, you have to think that it's, it's four points separates them right now. And they have equal amount of games. Both have played 65 to be as, as bad as Calgary's been over the last two months and still only be four points out of the playoffs, just because Winnipeg has been almost as bad is really striking. It doesn't look good for Winnipeg, but I want to think that they'll turn it around. They're a better team. I think on paper, they've got a better goalie. They, they have the assets there, but they're just, they can't buy a win. It's happened against everyone, good teams and bad teams. So I don't know what's happening there. If The only reason this is close is because of Winnipeg. It has nothing to do with Calgary. Yeah, and closing out the season, the Flames have the easiest strength of schedule in the NHL. They're 32nd, so they play some absolute cupcakes. Winnipeg's middle of the road, 15th. But when you look at Calgary's schedule, they're getting Anaheim's. They're getting San Jose's. They're getting... Who else is garbage that they Arizona. play? Arizona, Arizona, Chicago's. They're getting some easy, easy games on the schedule. So it would not surprise me for as bad as Calgary's been all season, for is just as much as we're calling for Daryl Sutter's head. What's going on with Jonathan Huberdo? Why can't the defense get it together? Jacob Markstrom can't stop anything. He's terrible. He's past his prime. They're going to slide into the playoffs. And I will say it here. If you're the Dallas Stars or the Vegas Golden Knights or the Los Angeles Kings, whoever ends up first place in the Western Conference, I do not want to play the Calgary Flames first round. I don't. They have the recipe for success in the playoffs. They have a good hard-nosed team. They have strength down the middle. They got great defensemen. Like really, really solid decor. So I, I think Calgary gets in. I think Winnipeg just implodes. And they don't get in, which is which is too bad because unlike you, I want both of these teams in the playoffs. I think it's good for hockey when Canada has all their teams in the playoffs. I think it would be exciting. The only avenue for Winnipeg to get in right now, in my eyes, is the, is the avalanche continue to slip and they get in in the central division. I think Calgary is going to continue to win. I think they will pass Winnipeg. I know there's only 16 games left, so I, I will be watching this race. I like it. There's something to watch in the Western Conference because two weeks ago, Tim, it was just boom, boom, done. Why even bother? The eight teams are all set. All right, moving on. I hate to say it. Someone got cut again last night. Another cut from a skate. It's it's big news. We have to change everything. The skates are too sharp. We got to stop sharpening skates. All the new blades have to go. Everybody has to wear bubble wrap so no one gets cut. Tyler Sagan got cut by Jordan Greenway's skate. 
And the Dallas Stars, absolute shellacking of the Buffalo Sabres. Did you see that? 10 to 4? <laughs> Just a beat down. And, you know, I checked the box score. Every player on Dallas had a point for Tyler Sagan. So I was going to chirp him. Then I saw that he got hurt in like the first period. I was like, all right, and that's why. But anyways, what do you think? Another cut? Should should there honestly be specially made socks that are cut proof? That's where I think they could make a change. The actual socks that the players put over their pads are made differently. Well, this is where I go back and forth because my instinct is to say, yeah, make them available. The players can choose to wear them if they want. Their adults make their own choices. But it's at the other th- at the other. On the other side of the coin, is the league obligated to keep their players safe? And then obviously the insurance companies are going to get involved at some point when they say like, hey, you have to mandate this because we're paying out too much money and this is, we're going to raise your premium. And like, I know the insurance co- at, a, at a league level is probably super, super complicated. Maybe you had a little bit of ex- you know exposure to that when you were doing the CBA stuff. But I, I err toward the side of just letting the players make it available, let them choose what they want to wear. They take the risk themselves. I agree. I think it's a it's a moot point. No one cares about it. Guys are getting cut. Not a big deal. All right, Tim. Anything else you want to touch on before a nice weekend we're gonna have? Uh no. Oh, K- Kirill Kaprizov is out for three to four weeks where he had that awkward uh impact L- where what's Logan Stanley fell on him. Yeah, yeah. Does that impact the I mean obviously it does. How much will it impact the wild? Well, their first line is tremendous. Ryan Hartman will pick up all of the offensive output that Kirill Kaprizov can't you know, isn't going to make because he's injured. So I think they'll be fine. But all kidding aside, this is a big blow for the Wild. They've been playing really good hockey, like really, really good hockey. They are scratching at the doorstep of the Dallas Stars or two points behind them to be the, gosh, the the best team in the Western Conference, let alone the Central Division. So it, it's a big blow. They don't have much scoring. They've gotten points and I think their last 11 games. They've been playing really, really good. To have this happen, it's bad. It's good that he's only going to be out a short period of time, but that West is sneaky. If you lose a few games, and like I said, I've said this all along with the Western Conference, a team can go on a 10-game winning streak, can flip a coin, 10-game losing streak just as easy. It it would not surprise me if they fall out of the playoffs just because they can't score a goal anymore. I don't know. We'll see, but keep an eye on that. The Wild have been playing really good, but he is the... He's the guy on that team who stirs the drink. He, he, He generates so much offense... I would like to know the advanced stats. I don't have it in front of me. They do players advance like effect on goal production. I know Connor McDavid's through the roof. He accounts for almost half, if not more, of the, all of Edmonton and others' goals. Kaprizov must be in that same category because when you look at their lineup, it, it, it's not that deep offensively. Like you got Kaprizov and Zuccarello. Matthew Boldy is still not that player. Then it's just like what, and that's no slight against Felino and Erickson Eck and Johansson and. All the other guys they have, though they're not solely offensively gifted guys. Like Kaprizov is there to score goals. Zuccarello is there to make plays. Who else do they have? So keep an eye on them. They all really have to lock down defensively. They have a good decor. Klingberg and Spurgeon and Middleton and Goligoski and Dumble. They got a, they got a good team. Flurry's starting to play better. He started the season so bad, but I don't know. What's more apt to happen to him minnesota falling out of a playoff spot or calgary jumping into a playoff spot in your eyes calgary just because of how how bad winnipeg's been okay all right well i guess we will wait to see i agree i wholeheartedly agree with you tim all right on that note thank you everybody for listening i hope you have a great weekend we'll catch up with everybody on monday cheers 
Thanks for listening to Dropping the Gloves with John Scott, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. 